listening to From Maker to Manufacturing, a podcast about what it really takes to grow a handmade business. Hey guys, welcome to episode three of From Maker to Manufacturing. I'm your host, Sarah Cooley. On today's episode, my guest is Aaron Dollar. Erin is the designer and maker behind Cotton and Flax, which is a home textiles company based in Los Angeles, California. I've been a fan of Erin's for a long time, so I was so excited to get a chance to interview her to talk about how she grew her business. Erin started out where a lot of makers start out, in art school. And the process of figuring out how to continue to do something that you love while turning it into a business isn't always easy. In this interview, Erin talks a lot about how she's been able to increase her manufacturing capabilities without necessarily hiring a full-time staff while still keeping her products made locally and by hand. I hope you guys enjoy our conversation and let's get into the interview. Thanks for joining me. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm so glad you could come on. Um, So for those people who don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. My name is Erin Dollar, and I run a business called Cotton and Flax. It's a collection of home decor products and some small gift products that are all hand-printed with my original pattern designs. And uh, yeah, it's mostly an e-commerce company. I have a website, cottonandflax.com, where you can find all of my my uh, home goods and other products. But I also have a pretty healthy uh, wholesale side. So you can find my work in small kind of indie boutiques around the country, around the U.S. And uh, yeah, I teach classes. I do a little bit of um, sort of education around printmaking and sort of small business training for people who are running creative small businesses. So I kind of have a lot of... A lot of stuff going on, but Cotton and Flax is my full-time baby. I take care of that uh, pretty much on my own, full-time. And uh, yeah, it's been a been a fun journey over the last four years, starting that business and seeing it flourish. It's been it's been just about four years, I think, this March. Or yeah, I guess this is the end of March, so we're we're really in four-year territory. Oh my Woo. god! Yeah, awesome. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about how Cotton and Flax got started. I think I know a little bit of the history, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if the listeners know everything about, you know, that four years ago, what what did the beginning of this journey really (laughs) look like? Yeah, yeah. So Cotton and Flax really kind of um, emerged out of my fine art practice. So I'm a printmaker by trade. That's really my bread and butter was uh, coming at this as a printmaker, as an artist. And so I was creating fine artworks on paper um, about four or five years ago. This is something that I was doing uh, partially to earn extra cash. I think it was sort of a strange time in my life. I had, I had just graduated from college kind of in the middle of the recession. It was just a really hard time to find full-time work, um, especially in the creative field that I was looking And I decided to go ahead and start selling some of my printed works online, things that I'd made in college and things that I was still making. Um, And that went pretty well, actually. It was something that I was able to do to help supplement my income from part-time jobs that I had at the time. And um, it was definitely fun for me to do craft fairs and share my work with other people and um, just kind of live as an artist and sort of be able to create that work on my own time schedule, not so much as a business, as much as just sort of um, a fine art practice. And so eventually I started sort of experimenting with printing on textiles and printing on fabric. This is something that um, was sort of inspired by a friend of mine who was really into quilting at the time. And she was really like, oh, gosh, wouldn't it be cool if you could like make some special fabrics for us to <laughs> us to integrate into these quilts we were making. And, um, you know, I just started printing on fabric and I fell in love. I was just like, this is so much fun. It's really a different process seeing your work come to life in a physical, um, product and like a kind of good that's going to be used in someone's home rather than just hung on the wall or sort of, um, displayed for people to enjoy actually creating something that people are using in their day-to-day lives in a more physical way is a really unique experience. And it was something that I just, 
completely fell head over heels for. And so I started to make this transition into selling more of these sort of physical products rather than just artworks. I was creating these original pattern designs and um, really still doing a lot of the hand making and uh, decided to really separate it from my fine art practice by rebranding as cotton and flax instead of selling under my first and last name, which I was doing before and, um, opening up kind of a separate shop for that and starting to do more events under that brand name. And so it wasn't, um, I, I, it's not that it wasn't a smooth transition because it was sort of a streamlined, okay, I'm just going to sort of start, you know, mm-hmm. using this brand name. It took me a little while to think of what I wanted the business name to be, but, after making that decision and kind of opening up the online shop, it was pretty much um, just a smooth transition over to doing that work. I was still, when I founded the business, I was still working um, part-time. I was doing these sort of other part-time jobs that were helping to supplement my income. But once I made that decision to rebrand and launch as Cotton and Flax, it was only about six months before I really decided, okay, this is, this is working. I'm going to go ahead and quit my, my part-time jobs and just focus full-time on this, on this brand, on this company. And when you say it was working, do you mean it was really, (laughs) was it providing enough income for you to like really live off of, or was it just, you saw that there was success and if you put more energy into it, it, you know, it would be better. Cause I had the, it was working moment, but yeah. I haven't had the, like, am I making $40,000 a year take home that definitely no, mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this is such a complicated question, right? Because I think if I were giving advice to other business owners, I'd be like, be really careful about that process. But I was not, <laughs> I was like, I'm earning enough to pay my rent and pay my bills. And I have a little bit of a financial cushion that I've been sort of saving up, um, from my, from my day jobs, essentially mm-hmm. that I felt like, I want to take this leap probably a little before I was ready. Um, partially, And the reason that I did that, I think, was partially because I know the power of being all in. I think when you fully commit to what you want to do and say, I'm going to give this the full force of my energy, the full force of my creative sort right. of thought process and not not sort of treat it as like, okay, on nights and weekends, I'm really going to like give this my all because that's that's great if that's all you can kind of give to a project. I mean, I think that you can really start setting yourself up for success if you're really dedicating those nights and, you know, early mornings and weekends to growing a business. Mm -hmm. But it isn't really until you take yourself seriously enough to say, this is my, this is my job. This is my business. I'm going to fully commit to this and really put all of my energy and all of my, my intention behind it, that I think that I was really able to reach that next level. I think that, you know, for a long time, I probably could have continued on that sort of, you know, uh, in my spare time kind of working on the business. But I think it wasn't until I felt that pressure of like, okay, this is, I'm, I'm all in, I've got to make this work. And here are the things that I'm going to do to push forward, Mm -hmm. that I really kind of was able to get to that next, that next level of success. So yeah, it's, it's a tough thing because I definitely, when I quit my day jobs, I definitely was not earning the salary that I am now or that I would have, um, that I would have been able to kind of sustain myself on for more than six months or more. Yeah. Um, I think that if I hadn't seen that, that growth right after I quit my day job, I would have probably been in trouble, but <laughs> I think it was just a leap of faith. And I think it was something that I really needed to do at the time to, to take that risk. I think that it's definitely a different process for everyone. And it's something that it's almost like you have to have the right personality type for that, because I think that pressure is really necessary for me to succeed, for me to have the drive to move forward. Um, but some people I know that could be paralyzing. That could be something that would completely derail any chance of success because it would be, it would be too much pressure. And so I think it's just knowing yourself and knowing what's going to propel you forward in the best way. You definitely have to be comfortable with a certain amount of risk, I think, when you go into this, Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. if you're not, you're going to give yourself a massive panic attack um, all all the time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, definitely. I think that what's so interesting about your, your kind of origin story is that deciding, you know, okay, this is exciting. I'm making physical products, but not just physical products because you were already creating physical art, but products that people were using in their home that had a a practicality to them. And I think that that's so interesting. I know right now your product line is, is 
well diversified, I would say. When you first started out, was it kind of one product category or were you pretty diversified kind of from the beginning and then just saw what worked and what didn't? Yeah. So that that's actually a really good point um, or good question because I feel like uh, I had a little bit of a unique situation in founding my business because I was already really familiar with what my customers were asking for. I was already doing these in-person events and meeting people and seeing what they were gravitating towards. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first when I first launched cotton and flax, it was just pillows and tea towels. And those were the only two products I offered. And they were really more one-offs. It wasn't sort of the kind of curated collection that I kind of offer at this point to my customers. It was really more, okay, I've, I've printed a one-off of this. What do you guys think of this? And then if people like them, I would make more of them. Um, it was a little bit more organic in terms of being able to see directly what people were responding to and then being able to just, since I was hand making everything, mm -hmm. uh, it was really easy for me to just create a few more and then put them up in my shop or bring them to a show and, um, and sell them kind of as one-offs. But yeah, in the beginning it was really just sort of trying to respond to with the customers who I was already engaging with, with my fine art, what were they looking for? What was um, appealing to them? And then kind of creating things on demand for them, uh, which is actually a really great way to go. And I think this is why so many businesses start on places like Kickstarter or areas where they can kind of judge what the demand is going to be before taking that risk of having a huge product line, yeah. because that that's really where the biggest risks in having a product-based business are is the inventory, having a ton of different types of products at first when you're not totally sure what your customer base needs or wants, that's a huge risk. And I think that that was something I was able to kind of mitigate by being so directly in touch with my customers already. Um, and so I think that was really a unique opportunity for me because I was selling my work to some extent in person and on Etsy already, but not everyone has that, that sort of ability to tap into their customer base right from the start. Well, I think it's really interesting because I had a similar, it, when I started my business, I was doing an artist's market in Brooklyn every weekend and, cool. you know, it was $200 for the table every weekend and there are some weekends where mm -hmm. I would only make $200 and that's not in profit that was just in in sales but I think people right, underestimate right. when they when they see the costs of a lot of these craft shows especially the bigger ones they're like oh I'd rather just sell on Etsy for another six to eight months but the value that really a lot of those shows give you is is just seeing what do people pick up first, right? Even people who don't buy anything, mm -hmm. what do they touch first? What do they go to first? What are they excited about and excited to show their friend? Oh my gosh, you have to see this. That is worth the cost of admission for you as a business owner to figure out in a shorter period of time, hey, this is working. I should put more energy into this than just sitting there and wondering why you're not getting any sales on your Etsy shop. There's so much competition mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. If you can get out there and get in front of people, people will tell you. People will be very honest. They'll, they're sometimes very rude, but they're usually very honest. <laughs> you, you'll be yeah. able to tell no, right away, funny. you know? I'm yeah, I've definitely had that that same experience early on doing shows. And one, some of the best advice that I received from sort of veterans of who've done a lot of those types of shows is to look at it really as a marketing expense and as an opportunity to do market research. Because if you've chosen a show, uh, a craft fair or an art show or a design show, whatever it is that you're doing, if you've chosen a show that really does attract your ideal customer, you have a really amazing opportunity to just pay attention and be in the moment there, seeing how those customers are reacting, even if they're not buying anything, if they're picking right. something up, if they're lingering on something, if they're asking a lot of the same questions, that's an opportunity for you to really grab onto that information and use it in service of your business. And the other thing that I think a lot of people really undervalue is the marketing expense that really you're taking on when you do a show like that. It's not always going to be, um, you know, I've definitely had shows that are, that are like you've described where you're like, Oh, I didn't really, I didn't really come out of that with a lot of profit, but mm -hmm. that was an opportunity for me to reach that wider audience, to make connections with other people in my industry and do that sort of networking that you're not necessarily able to do when you're in your studio making things or really focused on the, the your own sort of business. It's nice mm -hmm. to get out of the studio, make those connections that can then be lead to sort of fruitful collaborations or other opportunities down the road. And, um, 
yeah, you know, I actually worked for Renegade Craft Fair for a little while as their as their marketing and social media person. That was really a fun opportunity to really see uh, some some of the folks who are doing those shows and what they were getting out of it, and to hear kind of firsthand beyond just the sales, sort of what opportunities came from doing a show like that. And it's incredible. I think if you approach it with the right attitude and the sort of right um, the best face forward, like I was saying before, I think it's mm-hmm. like really it can lead you to so many amazing things and you just kind of have to be open to that and be ready for that and, um, and really approach it with that mindset of this is, this is beyond just making some cash that I'll be able to come home and like, you know, pay myself with. I think there's, there's a lot more that can come out of those opportunities that will grow your business in the long term Mm -hmm. If you're, if you're putting yourself, if you're setting yourself up for that type of success. And I think that you, you touched on something that I don't think people talk about enough, which is, if you're doing your research and the show is a show that, you know, really brings in your target customer, because I've definitely been to mm-hmm. shows where I'm like, it, this is, it's not me. It's that these, these aren't my people. These and aren't my people. You need yeah, to recognize yeah. when that's the case. And when it's the other case, these are my people, but the product isn't working for, or, or for who I think my target customer is, but really looking at right. a show or, or walking a show. And the same thing goes for trade shows too. You can tell really quickly, oh, this section is going to be a good section for me. These companies are similar. The buyers seem similar. Or, Mm -hmm. oh, I feel uncomfortable. I feel out of my league. I've gone to some of those more fashion-y trade shows to walk them and just been like, I don't think I fit in here. I don't feel... I yeah. don't feel like I'm cool enough to hang with these people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you are, but I, I know that feeling. And I think that the research stuff, uh, it's funny because I think that my academic background probably, I, I didn't get any, I didn't get a business degree. I didn't study business in college at all. I got an art degree and I sort of was more focused on the creative side. And so learning how to run a business was really kind of a tough road for me the first couple of years. And obviously I still have so much more. There's always more to learn in terms of how to run a creative business and how to best market your work and share your work with the world. But I think that research, I I don't ever regret doing too much research about things like this, especially when you're making that monetary investment that really um, can be quite expensive to go and do these shows and to yeah. um, put yourself out there in a bigger way. But the, the research always is really, really helpful, even if it's just asking people who've done that show in the past, sort of what their experience has been, what the customers were like, um, how much money they made in sales. People generally that I've spoken with are very generous with that information. If you're smart enough to like cast a net and actually try and get a sense of how those shows are working for people who've already tried them. I think that the research is always, always really helpful to have in your back pocket. Yeah. You'll never regret doing more research for sure. No, no. So information is good. (laughs) so do you remember when you first realized oh I'm running a business this is like a real business and maybe I don't have that that knowledge base and and where do you go to kind of learn more about all of those things like your bookkeeping all that stuff that creative people historically are not the most excited about (laughs) no yeah it's a terrible stereotype because I think that they're that that idea that uh, creative people can't manage those things like bookkeeping or marketing, it's really not true. Um, I think that there, that we do have a capacity to really wear these hats in our businesses and don't need to have that fear of like, Oh, I'm not smart enough or I won't understand this just because I'm creative. Mm -hmm. But I do, I definitely think that for a lot of us, there is that block there. And, and generally speaking, most of us don't want to be sitting and doing our taxes. We want to be focused on creating that work, creating our, our um, artworks or our products. And we don't want to be slowing down to focus on the analytic side or the sort of more, uh, nuts and bolts that helps us to plan and, you know, run the business day to day, but it, that it is a little bit more grueling. And honestly, yeah, that is kind of when I realized that I was running a real business is when I, I realized I need to take the time to see what's working and to really look at the data and look at my sales and look at um, sort of the the nuts and bolts, actual numbers behind the work that I've been doing and make more informed choices about how to move forward Uh, I think doing that within the first and second years, especially really kind of reinforced this idea of like, oh, this isn't just sort of like a fun art hobby that I have. This is a real, 
business and there's real opportunity for growth here if I'm mindful to kind of keep keep all of these different balls in the air because that's so much of what we're doing as creative business owners is juggling all of these different responsibilities beyond just making beautiful original work. It's also um, having to pay attention to your sales and marketing and your bookkeeping and all of these other sort of logistical things mm-hmm. uh, that keep things moving forward. And if you if you let any of those balls drop for too long, it can really derail, you know, the forward motion of your company. And so I think that being able to find help when I've needed it, ask for help when I've needed it, finding mm-hmm. a bookkeeper who I really liked and um, making sure that I'm that I understand sort of the numbers behind what what's going on day to day in the business that mm-hmm. has really helped me to take it more seriously and to make really educated choices about, you know, I think I think we've all had this experience of like, oh, I think I know what my best seller is, but then if you actually go and look at what the numbers are, or look at kind of how people have responded to things, it might be a little bit different than your gut feeling. I think mm-hmm. it's it's good to trust your gut on a lot of the kind of creative decisions that you're making. But at the same time, as a business person, you really need to look at the data and make sure that your numbers back up those gut feelings. <laughs> because that can be an expensive mistake to make if you're like, oh, I think that this pillow is my bestseller. And then you make a ton more of them and they don't sell. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> hmm. It's because the numbers didn't back that up. It didn't back up that gut feeling. So yeah, making that transition from just being a creative person, an artist who is sharing her work with the world too. I am a, I'm a small business owner. I'm an entrepreneur. That was kind of a, a weird stage to kind of get comfortable with. It was, I th- I feel more comfortable in that role now. It's exciting to make that transition because I do, I do agree with you that it's a really negative stereotype. Um, a lot of times what I found was once I got into it and I understood it, I was just as excited about all of the data because I because it was helping me make other decisions and I could really like geek out on all of that stuff and drill down and then you're amazed and you're like oh wow look this you know this is showing me x or we did this much percent more this month over last month or whatever it is when you first kind of started to get into it um, you you mentioned the first couple years so were you still just primarily on Etsy and it was more looking at your Etsy sales data or were there some other tools that you could recommend that people can really do more of a deep dive on their analytics. So, yeah, I mean, for the first year, yeah, I think I didn't launch my independent website until the second year. So it was really, yeah, Etsy was a great place for me to kind of dig into those sales numbers. I also am kind of a fangirl for Google Analytics. It's like super boring, I think, for a lot of people, but, no, but I it's really so like great. digging into those Yeah, it really kind of um, exposes so much information about where your customers are coming from. And I kept hearing this thing from from small business owners of like, oh, you really can't attribute sales to social media or you really can't get a sense of like what's actually working in your business. I'm like, that's not true. Oh my God, that's not true. (laughs) That just means you don't know how to look. Yeah, like they're just not empowered to like look at that data and really make a a correlation or like understand the causation between these things. And I feel like there are so many tools like Google Analytics, like these sort of um, individual sort of, I I like to use Iconosquare and all these other Mm -hmm. sort of analytics or platforms for tracking uh, social engagement as well. But Google Mm -hmm. Analytics, especially for me, opened up this door of understanding where my customers were coming from, what they were really engaging with the most, and what what sort of path they were taking as they were making those purchases, which is so valuable. Understanding um, where you're making those really meaningful connections with people online, especially, um, that's that's super, super helpful to have access to that type of information. And I think that it really you can have this idea again, like the sort of understanding of, Oh, I know what my best sellers are. I know what my customers are really like and what they're into, but looking at that hard data, that actual sort of path that they've taken from one website or one social post to actually making a purchase that can really illuminate things in a more, um, in a deeper way. And I think that having, having the, the ability to go and check up on that from time to time can help realign sort of what your focus is. It's amazing when you see that path, like they clicked here and then they clicked here and then they put it in their mm-hmm, cart mm-hmm. and then they left and never bought right. anything and you want to stab someone with a knife. Um, like, but what, what is this? <laughs> 
Well, but this is the other thing too. It's like, I feel like this was the thing that I struggled with for a long time of, uh, seeing my work get featured on websites and blogs and seeing this huge spike in traffic. And sometimes it would lead to sales and sometimes it wouldn't understanding that just because there's a huge influx of people in your shop doesn't mean that it's your right audience. Doesn't mean that it's your ideal customers that are really going to be excited about your work Mm -hmm. and being able to tease that apart with Google analytics has been so illuminating because I think that I had a lot of preconceived notions about where my my customers were hanging out online and some of it was right and some of it wasn't so Mm -hmm. it was really helpful to get a sense of truly what my customers are interested in so I can engage with them better so that I'll know kind of what matters to them and what's important to them what they're struggling with and be able to provide help and sort of insights into how to get where they want to go are you doing a lot of email marketing also or is it mainly a social? little bit? I wish that I had more time for that. Yeah, I, I feel like social media is so easy for me because it's, you know, you can kind of check in on a daily basis and there isn't that much you need to do to um, to get that stuff going. Email marketing, I really want to be careful about um, how often I'm reaching into my, my fans inboxes because I think that's a really personal space and it can be really easy to alienate people by just overreaching or overselling. Mm-hmm. I really only want to reach out to people over email when I have something important, something really timely and useful for them. Um, a really good offer or something brand new that I haven't really shown elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm careful just to kind of, um, limit that to really only when it's absolutely necessary or really pressing, Um, whereas like Instagram and Pinterest and all those other platforms, I'm checking in pretty much on a daily basis because I think people want to have that more frequent engagement there. That's very true. So going back a little bit to when, when you were talking about when you first started and you were creating more of these one-off pieces, talk to me about the transition between, you know, deciding to move to a process that does look a little bit more like manufacturing and did you feel like Mm -hmm. you were worried you were going to alienate some people or was that just like a natural next step? It felt a little more natural to me. Um, Of course, I wanted to be mindful to kind of stick to the core values of my business, which were using sustainable materials. Um, I, I really pride myself on choosing fabrics and inks and all of the sort of raw materials that I use in my production process that are more more eco-friendly, more um, mm-hmm. gentle on the earth, better in terms of sustainability long term, especially living in California. I think that, that was something that was really on my mind because we've been in this really long term drought. And I think that there is a lot of conversation around um, making choices in all of our purchases that are a little bit more conscious of those struggles of those, um, you know, potential problems and in our, uh, in our daily lives. And so it was definitely something that I wanted to be mindful of as I made that transition from hand printing, uh, you know, hand block printing every piece to, uh, moving towards more sustainable production practices for me too. um, getting to choose products that I wanted to make more of kind of in advance and making the, the, the chance to, or making the transition to just doing silkscreen printing rather than hand block printing. It, it was sort of a natural, course of action for me because I knew that if I continue to do everything in that really, really laborious way of hand printing all the little blocks, that probably wouldn't have been sustainable in terms of my pricing, Mm -hmm. especially as I moved into wholesale. I wanted to keep my products affordable and moving to silkscreen printing was a way to keep the the quality really high, but to also not be bogged down and hand, hand printing every piece. Everything is still hand printed uh, using a silk screen, but it, it has like mm-hmm. a slightly different look and it's a little bit less variation in the, in the quality of the print. So i I really thought of that as a way to maintain the really high quality of what I was doing, but also to make it easier for me to reach a larger fan base and to do wholesale and to kind of uh, level up in that way. Um, but honestly that I think that there is this misconception in my business, especially where people think that it's like a huge team that's creating these things. And it's still <laughs> primarily just me, which I, I get these emails sometimes. It's like, oh, hello, cotton and flax marketing team or hello, cotton and flax, you know, production team. We want to offer you this. And it's like, no, it's hey, it's just Aaron. Hey, <laughs> it's OK. And those are just that, salespeople um, who don't know how to do their job. Yeah. Yeah. Who don't, who aren't reading well. But that's OK. You know, I think that I have been lucky enough to be able to 
especially with much larger product uh, projects or larger wholesale um, purchases, I think that I have been able to reach out to a team of local sewers who are able to kind of help me with some of the big, big production problems that I was running into. Because that really, as, as a business grows, I think you, you tend to find, okay, there's a, there's a level that I can reach on my own. And that's pretty much it. Unless I want to completely burn out and run myself into the ground and mm-hmm. be exhausted all the time. There's only so much that an individual person can do day to day. And so you need to start to look for, okay, what are areas that I can streamline? What are areas that I can hand off to someone else to help me with that production side? And for me, the things that I've held on to are the things that I really get the most joy out of. I love the printing still. And so for me, I really want to keep doing the printing for as long as I possibly can. And things like sewing or finishing or um, things that I don't think require my unique specialty, the, the knowledge that I have personally, I've tried to hand those off um, as often as possible just to kind of give myself room to continue to be designing and focusing on the creative work behind the business. So you know, for example, um, something that I might hand off to a contract store would be a very large wholesale order or something like that. I just finished a order of 450 table runners for the crafters box. I just created a bunch of blank table runners for them for a printing, printing DIY kit that they're selling, um, that we've co-branded. And it's, it was an amazing opportunity to be able to create these beautiful linen table runners because I had access to this great quality linen and, mm-hmm. um, you know, being able to reach out to my team of contract sellers here in LA and just say, Hey, I need to create a lot of these on a really tor- short time scale that was amazing to be able to hand off the majority of that work and still be able to focus on day-to-day stuff at Cotton and Flax without it completely derailing every time a big project like that comes my way. So having having that network of folks who aren't really employees, they aren't people who are working for me full-time, but I have access to them to be able to kind of hand off bigger chunks of projects when I need to, that's, oh my God, that's invaluable. I don't think that I would be able to have grown the business to the point that I'm at now without access to those types of resources. So I think that's amazing to just to have that that opportunity to scale your business with the ebbs and flows of your sales cycle, knowing that, okay, because I do wholesale around the holiday time. So September, October, we're going to have a couple bigger orders or whatever. And, and knowing that, oh, this doesn't mean I need to bring on three people full time and offer them the security of a full time job, but rather I can find the cottage industries that service, you know, that can do this kind of work and and right. really reach out when when you have that scale and you and that volume that you need kind of fulfilled. I think it's super smart cash flow wise to not sometimes I, I've, I instead, you know, brought on a full time um, employee for production and there are days where it seems like she can't get enough done and then there are other days where it feels like she's standing around and there's not not much to do so um <laughs> yeah it works for us because those days are more like one day to, you know one day to the next things kind of go up and down but if you know that in your mm-hmm. business oh we really don't focus wholesale for much of the rest of the year but for holiday we have a lot of those things like knowing you can kind of use these I don't want to say like alternative, but it's a different way to grow your team. It's a different way to scale mm-hmm. your capacity. And I think that's very interesting and something that people should really look into. You don't have to outsource the yeah. entire process. You can outsource the right. one process that is, you know, taking up the most time but needs the least amount of creativity, whatever that is, right? It might be mm-hmm. labeling or mm-hmm. packaging or in your case, sewing. Um, and you're still doing a lot of the creative printing work yourself. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is something that I was getting suggestions for even in year one, like, when are you going to hand off the production process? And honestly, I, I think that even still, I don't want to hand off every part of the production process, because then the company, the company would be so different. Um, that I'm not sure that I would enjoy running it in the same way. I think mm-hmm. that I really like having my hand in the making process, even if it's not 100%, you know, my hands are the only ones that have touched these products. Like it's, it's <laughs> nice to have that, that support of a, a creative, uh, you know, a, a, a creative team that's kind of able to help me when I need them. But I, I'm not ready even now, um, even as I'm, I'm getting busier and busier with the, the logistics of managing a business day to day. I think that I'm, I don't ever want to really hand off the entire process because it would be a very different company than the one that I founded four years ago. I think that 
the making is still really important to me and I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of that crazy, crazy growth um, to maintain the quality and to kind of hold on to some of that, that process of making for as long as I can, because my, my goal here isn't to make, you know, isn't to create a huge, you know, multi-million dollar company. It's really just to focus on creating work that I'm really proud of and creating high quality work that's going to last people um, through different stages of their lives. I don't want to create throwaway products or things that are really going to be just sort of used and abused and thrown away. I want to make something that makes an impact in people's lives and in their homes. And so for me, maintaining that quality, maintaining that attention to detail means, means to me keeping some of the, the process in-house and really keeping an eye on that side. So yeah, I think that definitely... There's nothing wrong with outsourcing production if that that's what works best for your business and you can find quality partners to go go with you on that process. But but for me, I'm not I'm not quite ready. I'm not quite ready for that stage of just handing it all off to someone else. Maybe I will be in the future, but I think for now I'm really comfortable where the where the production side of the business is at. Yeah, I I think there's a difference between outsourcing, meaning totally handing it off and and it's not in house anymore, to hiring somebody in house and educating them on on mm-hmm. how to do it, mm-hmm. and it it still means you can you know jump in and help out whenever you have the time. But a lot of times, right. your right. other jobs of being the the owner and the marketing head and all of those other things, um, they take mm-hmm. up more time, and you don't have time to to do those other things. But I I agree if, if you love it and if it's what is keeping you happy in the business, then, you know, Mm -hmm. don't, don't listen to other people when they say, Oh, you could do so much more, (laughs) so much faster. If it's, you know, ultimately your happiness. That that definitely is true. Like I totally get why people say that it totally, it makes sense because I think that I, I do want to create a space where I have, um, plenty of time to be doing that higher level thinking about the business. I think when you do all the production yourself, you can finish your days feeling really exhausted and stretched pretty thin. Um, but for me, I think that figuring out the right balance of growth and, um, kind of how much time I'm able to spend on that and then balancing that with, with support from, from, from either contract sewers or, you know, part-time assistants who come in, you know, that that's enough for me. I think that I am, I totally am envious of your ability to hire that full-time help though, because I think what happens then is you have this advocate for your business who's just as invested in the process as you are, or maybe close to, you know, I think no one will ever really understand that core sort of motivation as much as, as much as a founder. But I think that having that team that's really there for the long haul can be really, really amazing in terms of the extra support that you get. But yeah, for now, this is, this is the model that works best for me. No, I mean, I'm fully aware that I 100% like lucked out with our two employees, our one girl who's on production is amazing. And I think I don't know how I instilled this in her. And I hope I can replicate it with somebody (laughs) else. But she probably cares about the quality more than I do. I care. But at the end of the day, I'm like, can we get it out the door? And she's like, it's not perfect. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. But I think close. that it's very, 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 it's very close. close. It looks good. No one will notice except for you. You're the only one who can tell. Um, no, but mm-hmm, but we mm-hmm. care a lot about quality and, and it is good to understand your process and really fully understand your passion before you can bring someone else on and try to transfer that. Right. The process of doing that is a, is a huge learning experience. But for me, what I found was when I was doing all the manufacturing myself, like you said, you, your, your days not only end, you know, you still feel very overwhelmed, but also I was spending too much time in the day to day and not being mm. able to look forward because I was too busy trying to handle everything that was on my plate today. And when I wasn't able to right. look towards the future, then I was missing other opportunities because deadlines come early. Think, You know, you have to plan out your year and really think you know, far ahead, um, as a business Mm -hmm. owner, right. Mm -hmm. It's weird to be thinking about Christmas in July, but that's what happens. Um, (laughs) yeah, the long-term planning really does suffer when you're completely bogged down and just getting orders out the door. I totally get that. So when you have been, have been growing for the last, you know, four years, what do you think has been the biggest challenge or what have you maybe struggled with the most? Yeah, definitely. Um, keeping my finger on the pulse of what my customers want and need. I think that being able to 
make sure that I'm working in service of them and um, bringing products to the table that are really going to delight them. Uh, that to me is the biggest challenge of running a business, making sure that it's not, um, you know, I, I would never say that cotton and flax is a vanity project for me, but making sure that I'm not just <laughs> thinking about, you know, what makes me happy to create, because that's definitely a big part of it. And I think that people really get a lot of enjoyment about of, of seeing my creative process and seeing how much I love what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously a big part of it. And it's important but also keeping my customers in mind as I'm creating these new products, because I really do want to delight them with what everything that I put out there and to really create things that are going to serve them in their homes. So kind of taking that temperature of my customers in the business on a regular basis and making sure that I'm, I'm keeping those goals in mind. It can be tough when you're already sort of busy, just the day-to-day -day stuff, the bookkeeping, the fulfilling orders, making sure you're taking fresh product photography, all of that keeps you so busy that mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to step back and, and get a sense of what that bigger picture is and how things are going as a whole. So yeah, making time to make those strategic alignments and make sure that you're, you're accomplishing those bigger, longer term goals is a, is a big struggle for me. Do you feel like going into wholesale, helped you change the way that you think about your business or was it more of a something that kind of tripped you up in the beginning? Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting learning process. I think that, um, wholesale is a very different animal than, than doing just online retail. I think that you have a very different client when you're working with store buyers or people who are stocking retail shelves than um, folks who are buying your work online. They have very mm -hmm. different needs and wants um, from your products. And so figuring out the best way to market my work to a wholesale customer was, was definitely a challenge. I think that they that my wholesale customers also though have a very deep connection with what I'm doing and are invested in a different way and what I'm offering. I think that they want to see my business succeed. Um, and so they're off there, the, what they offer is sort of that regular business, that regular sort of check-in and wanting to, um, see what's new, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that it definitely took me a little while to figure out since it wasn't, I think probably a core, uh, part of my business plan. It was something that sort of got added in as I, as I started to experience demand, um, I think that it was something that I had to sort of learn on the fly how mm -hmm. best to serve those customers. So it's something I'm much better at now than maybe <laughs> year one. <laughs> I didn't have a line sheet or I didn't have any sort of wholesale presence at all. I but were you I'm getting kind of were you getting a little bit more requests like year one? Is that really what right. started your interest? Yeah. People were saying, hey, can I put this in my store? And you were like, I don't know how to do right. that. You're like, uh, like, yeah, let me get back to you on that. <laughs> you just uh, say yes quick, and then like, you figure it out later. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's definitely something that I do. I think <laughs> you'd be surprised because I think that, uh, you know, especially store owners that are contacting you on Etsy or contacting you over email, they are really um, more willing than you might expect to kind of help hold your hand through the process. If this is something that, you know, your listeners or um, folks who are tuning in are just starting to experience that demand. I think don't be afraid to ask questions. That was something that I really felt like, Oh God, I have to like have all the answers and have a perfect catalog to send these people. Like, like they didn't really need that. Like yeah. it was okay that I was a little bit inexperienced and sort of said, okay, these are my terms. And does that work for you? And just having to kind of feel my way through the process at first. Um, you learn some expensive lessons that way, but you kind of get to get to a point where you start to understand, okay, this is what's workable for my company. And, um, this is, this is maybe what's not workable and figure out how to make that, uh, a good, a good value for those wholesale customers, because they have very different needs than someone who's just buying, um, a couple of products off of your site. So I think it's easy yeah. to get paralyzed, like with perfection, right? You, you're, mm. you want it to be perfect, just as perfect as all of your other, you know, marketing efforts or just as perfect as your website looks or whatever. And I mean, you should mm -hmm. see my first line sheet. I mean, I wouldn't show it to anyone now, but, um, <laughs> people have seen it. It was on one of yep, uh, Megan yep. Almond's wholesale classes for creative live back in the day. So like oh, my wow. first line yeah. sheet, it's not good. It's bad. Um, no, I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> but I think you let the, you let, you know, worrying that, oh, it doesn't have all the things it needs or all the photography is not perfect, um, that you let it really yeah. trip you up when, when, you know, you, they'll tell you if, if something is wrong or something is not, yeah. 
you know, an industry standard. Yeah, and, and you learn so much that way. Ask you. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. So what's exactly. the what would you say if you had to estimate is your mix right now between wholesale and direct to consumer percentage wise? Yeah, that's tricky. So it kind of varies throughout the year too. That's the that's the hardest part is kind of predicting what their um, interest is going to be month to month because I think that retail buyers are on a very different shopping schedule than individuals. Mm-hmm. So I would say right now it's probably sixty percent online sales and forty percent wholesale, which for me is pretty comfortable. Mm-hmm. I think if I were to grow much more into wholesale, that I would need to expand to a bigger production team or um, get a little bit more of that production help, just because the number of individual products you have to create when you're a primarily wholesale brand is. Oh, it's insane. It's a lot to <laughs> lot to keep up with. So, you know, I and I want to keep that mix because it's important to me to maintain that direct connection with my customers and to understand what the demand is for those products and really um, start to build out the collection in a in a meaningful way in a way that I think is going to be um, most helpful and most uh, most resonate with that audience on an individual level. So, mm-hmm. I think it's always going to be a mix. I don't think I'm ever really going to want to shift to a hundred percent, a hundred percent wholesale. And I really do just trade shows and no online presence at all. I think mm-hmm. this is, this is a mix that I'm feeling pretty comfortable with for now. Well, that's good. I mean, it's exciting that you're able to maintain that mix at, at 60%. I don't think that we would be as much wholesale if my online sales were better than they are. But it's the funny mm-hmm. thing about the difference between your products and our products is that you have to smell my products. <laughs> Ah, yeah, this is the challenge of something that's so tactile like that, how to make those sales online when people are missing that most important factor. Yeah, Yeah. that's so what I so what I when I identified that and I realized, oh, I can't just have an e-commerce business as much as I wanted one. I realized that in the beginning, Mm. I had to focus on wholesale really heavily so that I got the products in front of people's faces because if you saw it right. in a store and you smelled it and you bought it for a friend or you bought it for yourself, you might buy it again at that store, but you might buy it again on our website. Um, but that initial yeah. interaction with the product kind of had to be physical. So whether it was you met me at a craft show, which there there aren't nearly as many of them, um, especially now that I live in Michigan. Uh, but you, you have mm, yeah. to kind of think about your product too because with with you I was first attracted to your product you just it was great product photography a useful useful Thank application you. in the home and then it's easy to attract those customers but if you have something like either mm-hmm. uh I feel like skincare uh candles right food right those kinds of yeah. things they're tactile and you have to smell them and feel them and and you know or you get a recommendation from a friend and so that word of mar- mouth marketing uh, word right, of mouth marketing right. will work for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely is a really unique challenge to try to get those uh, those tactile qualities across online. And I definitely feel like I experienced some of that too, because I think there's this feeling of um, not being able to understand scale or mm-hmm. sort of color necessarily online. Things can really kind of be so varied based on people's monitors even I think it can be hard for people to make that leap into investing in a more expensive product when they don't have it in hand Mm -hmm. um so being able to kind of make that um make that leap with them in terms of being able to to describe things in my product descriptions Mm -hmm. and to really give them as much opportunity as possible to envision these pieces in their own homes Mm -hmm. that's really I think where people feel a little bit more comfortable making that investment. But, oh, my gosh, yeah, it's a challenge. Being able to have that retail space, that physical retail space, whether it's at a a craft fair or your own shop, I think that that really is so invaluable for people to actually be able to handle the products and have that one-to-one connection. But in lieu of that, we find workarounds. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that the scale thing is important. You guys do a great job of having the product shop, but then having the pillow on a couch or something like that. Cause I've definitely had mm-hmm, that experience mm-hmm. where you buy something online, especially with pillows because it's a square, right? And you have no idea how big it is, yeah. even if the description <laughs> tells you how big it is and then you order it and you get yeah. it at home and it's way smaller than you thought it was going to be. It feels way bigger, way smaller. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So having yeah, those, those two different kinds of product photography is important for people to, to think about also that lifestyle, yeah. show it in the home. Even people have told us that, oh, our candles, they look smaller online than they are 
in real life. And so the value is harder to see if I don't have a shot of it, you know, next to a stack of books or next to something else, you know, something that will really show the scale is, is super important. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Lifestyle photography is probably the best investment that I made in my business in the early years is just having that really beautiful depiction of what you can use the products for. Mm-hmm. I think that's like the, the best investment that any creative business can have in their, in their product photography is just to really be able to share with people, um, what kind of beautiful sort of impact this can have on your life that can have on your home. Being able to express that visually is really important. That's so, that's so true. Okay. So I think you touched on this a little bit before, but what do you think is the biggest misconception people have about your business or about starting a business in general? Yeah. I mean, about my business, I think, yeah, I touched on this before that people generally tend to think that it's a team effort and it is to some extent. I definitely have, um, you know, some contract sewing help. I have, uh, assistants that come and help me seasonally and, um, I have a marketing intern who helps me to kind of get some fresh ideas for how to share my work with my fans and followers. But it's really just me. It's me answering <laughs> the emails. It's me doing all the social media posts. It's me sort of from start to finish with most of the most of the aspects of my business. So I think that that conception that there's a big team behind me or that I have that uh, that network of employees is really not true. Um, I have a bunch of people that I work with from time to time. I have a few photographers that I love collaborating with mm-hmm. and, um, folks that help me with that production side. But when it comes down to it, it's just me. So I think that that's probably the biggest misconception, um, about starting a business in general. Uh, I don't know. I think that maybe people tend to us and underestimate how difficult it will be. I think that people feel like, um, maybe overly confident when they see people's success stories and they think, Oh, I can do that. I'm, I'm talented. I've got a great idea. I'm going to just put it out there and that, you know, build it and they will come. And that's so not true. I think the, (laughs) the long road ahead when you found your own business, I think people have a hard time visualizing what that will be like and what that will feel like. And that's why we hear so many stories of people burning out or creative people, losing passion for the work that they're doing because they're juggling so many other aspects of the business. And it's really sad to hear. Um, I think that this is something that I encounter a lot um, in my creative network in LA of people just really struggling to keep that sort of fire behind their businesses going. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that we all have different ways of dealing with that burnout and dealing with um, kind of taking good self-care, taking good care of ourselves as we're moving forward in our business to help avoid some of those issues. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it's rough. I think that a lot of people, um, especially on social media, don't want to share a lot of the nitty gritty of what it's like to run a business. And so you see a little bit more of a um, forward facing sort of pleasant sort of look at the business. And I think that that's totally fine. I don't expect anyone to share their personal struggles and I think privacy is actually something that we should try to maintain for Mm -hmm. our personal lives. But at the same time, I think it can make things look easy that maybe are a little bit more challenging and take a lot more blood, sweat and tears than a lot of people are willing to acknowledge. So, yeah, I think that's it's true. It it takes more. It takes more time. Um, It takes more Mm -hmm. effort and it it does take a certain personal sacrifice. Um, You but but doesn't necessarily have to be so sacrificial. I think that self-care is super important. It's easy to think, oh, I can't focus on anything else but the business right now. And it's easy to let your Ugh. your health go down, hit like your all of the yeah, stuff, everything like falls. That's the fastest road to burnout. <laughs> right, your yeah, sleep, yeah, you're not sleeping yeah. well, you're not eating well, you're not exercising. Um, those are things that I'm realizing like you have to take care of those things because you're going to mm-hmm. yeah, you're going to burn out or, or you're going to create a very unhealthy version of yourself that won't be able to kind of keep up with the yeah. the longer term demands of, of running a business. 
Um, yeah, you can't you can't do your best work when you haven't taken care of yourself. That's really something I had to learn like year one and two, mm-hmm. um, because that there is that impulse of like, oh, I'll just work, you know, 14 hour days every day and it'll just sort of magically come together. But yeah, the end road there is that you are exhausted and you don't bring <laughs> your best ideas to the table. So, yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's a tough thing to balance. And balance difficult. is sort of a misconception, too, that you'll get to this point where everything will just feel perfectly in alignment and that you'll be of this work-life balance that everyone dreams of. But I, I'm, I'm starting to think that is a big misconception because I think you're always going to struggle to make everything kind of come together. So yeah, just being flexible is really important. That's not a real thing. Work-life balance. I (laughs) I don't believe that it is. And, and one of the things that somebody said this to me and I felt like it made it, I, I totally stole it, but you know, we have excuses or I don't have time for this or I don't have time for that. But really it's just that that thing is not a priority right now. So it's okay to say that's not a priority right now because you have time if you were to shift it and use it for something else, right? The, the balance, it's not that it's always going to be a perfectly level seesaw. It's that some days are really heavy on family stuff and some days are really heavy on Mm -hmm. business stuff. And you have to know kind of just your own barometer for where you're at with, with all of that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So thinking to the future of cotton and flax, what are you the most excited about? There are a lot of projects that are kind of down the road that I'm looking towards with like, oh, big heart eye emoji, Aaron. <laughs> I, I'm really excited about year four, year five for Cotton and Flax. I think it's going to be a fun, fun time to really explore some different areas of growth. I think one of the things that I try to do with the business is just kind of keep looking for ways that I can either share the expertise that I've gathered over creating this business and um, having it become a really thriving thing for me. I think I really want to, you know, do more podcasts, do more sort of opportunities to share, uh, my experience and my background so that it can help to inspire others to try and take on this, this journey or something that's, you know, either like what I'm doing or completely not like what I'm doing. I think that that's definitely a nice, a nice component to, where I'm at in, in the present is feeling a little bit more confident about sharing that expertise. Um, so I'm doing more teaching, which is a lot of fun. I just did two, uh, online classes with creative live. That was a lot of fun to go and do. Um, it's nice to reach that larger audience and get a little bit more feedback about what's useful for people. And, um, share, I shared, uh, some of my expertise around social media marketing for creative businesses, as well as sort of more of the tactile hands-on stuff with silkscreen printing and um, just doing more of more of those types of things, teaching, doing workshops, kind of um, sharing that knowledge in person is always really fun for me. Um, but also moving more into uh, licensing and sort of ha- seeing my pro- my uh, pattern designs on a bigger diversity of products. I think that's something I'm really looking forward to exploring more this year. So, yeah, a couple big big projects that I'm adding into the lineup here. That's so exciting. Okay, Um, so I have a few rapid-fire questions that are going to be the same for everybody. Um, Who is the first person you go to for advice, business or otherwise? Oh, gosh. Um, I... I feel like I've I've been really lucky in that in LA I have a great network of friends who are also creative business owners, which is kind of great and terrible at the same time because it means that we're all so busy. But it's also great to have a friend network of people who are really comfortable talking about the unique challenges of running creative businesses. And so I'm I feel lucky that I have a couple of friends who I kind of tune into uh, or like dig into these types of meteor conversations every time I see them. Um, and luckily I think that they've been able to kind of keep me grounded in a way, um, that's been, that's been really great. I think having a mentor, having sort of that, um, that person who's sort of helping you see the bigger picture is really valuable, but, um, yeah, it's nice to also combine that with friendship and be able to offer that support for them in, in the same, same breath. It's true. It's great to have that network of of friends and and other business owners because one of the reasons why I started this podcast was ultimately the advice that you want when you're going through these things are from people who have been there and done it already right you're going to get a lot of unsolicited advice from people who shouldn't be giving you advice 
Um, <laughs> but you want to talk to people who've gone yeah. through those same those same challenges and same struggles. So it's great that you have that community yeah. even locally, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I think people who understand your unique motivations for wanting to be a business owner, for wanting to share your work more widely, I think that that's it's important not to just take everyone's advice with the same sort of, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but like, some people's advice you want to, yeah, exactly. With the same sort of weight to it. I think that you want to take their advice with a grain of salt because it doesn't necessarily apply to your core motivations as a business owner. And some people know you personally and know what's really going to, um, help you feel successful and feel happy in what you're doing. And they might be able to offer, even if it's not necessarily, um, based in the same understanding of running a business or running like the nuts and bolts of your, your bottom line. I think that mm-hmm. they can help give you that guidance in terms of like long-term planning and understanding what's really going to help you feel more balanced and more successful long-term. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's nice that I have that mix and it's taken me a long time to sort of, uh, rely on my most extroverted version of myself to make those connections because I think that it it really was a struggle to kind of meet those people and really um, build up a network over time of Mm -hmm. people who were either in a similar boat or doing creative work that I I really admired and yeah it's it's been nice to finally have that at my at my fingertips that's awesome Okay, if you were starting your business from scratch today, so today in today's social media climate and and with all the you mm-hmm. know different things, um, what would you do differently? <sighs> yeah, a lot of things probably. <laughs> I think that definitely. Um, I'm really satisfied with the sort of slow and steady growth I've had over four years. I think that um, some people, when they found their companies, really want to see that like exponential growth right from the start. But I'm I'm not that way. I'm I'm thinking more long term and what's going to be sustainable for me as well as sustainable for the company. I think that um, I probably wouldn't do much different on the production side. What I might do differently is having a stronger um, business plan for the long term. I really founded the business out of my gut feelings of what was selling well and what I wanted to do. But having a better plan for marketing and a better plan for how you're going to share those goods with the wider public is really, really helpful. And it's Mm -hmm. something that I kind of had to do in reverse in year two and three to kind of get a better sense of where I was aiming for long term. So starting with those intentions in mind would probably have led me to a similar place that I'm at now, but it might have been a little less heart-wrenching at times to come to these decisions uh, out of necessity rather than out of planning. So yeah, business plan. It's, it's boring advice, but it's super helpful. It's the hardest thing to do. You you sit down and you're like, mm-hmm. I I don't know. I I know what it is in my head, but when you when you're forced with having to write it all out, it's it's such a helpful exercise. But most it, it's the one that people skip the most. Um, really, yeah. really doing yeah, because it's a proper business yeah. plan. Yeah, it's tough. Okay, mm-hmm. last mm-hmm. question: What's more important, dreams or plans? Oh. Well, I know uh, my friend Rosanna from Iron Curtain Press, who is opening up a retail shop this week. She oh, so is jealous. like the girl who's got them. Yeah, me too. She she is so, so up. Uh, like she is just like skyrocketing right now. It's amazing. Um, but her big mantra is like, the dream is free, but the hustle is sold separately. And this so resonates with me because I feel like that understanding your dreams and your motivations for wanting to share your creative work helps you to make those longer term plans. But without, without that planning side, without those guidelines for benchmarks that you want to reach with your business or, um, things that will help you to feel successful, you have nothing to aim for. And you just sort of sit in the spot of feeling helpless and not Mm -hmm. being able to really execute anything to achieve those dreams. So I don't, I don't think you can really have one without the other. If it's just sort of plans and strategic stuff, you don't really have that fire that helps keep you going long term. Yeah. Um, but without the planning side, without the sort of strategic side, you can't really you can't get there. It's really hard to kind of accidentally have everything fall in your lap in the exact way that you want it to. So it happens to some people who are very, very lucky. But I think for the rest of us, making those plans and figuring out how we're going to achieve those dreams is it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. 
That's so true. It's it's necessary to have both, which is why I think it's a very interesting question. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully in the course of the podcast, I don't get so much. Uh, I I feel like I might change it if we keep getting the same answer because so far I've gotten the same answer uh-huh. from two people. It's hard. It's well, because it's it's true. Yeah. You need to have you need to be a dreamer. You or, or I remember one time I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, another fellow small business owner, and I said, I think I'm going crazy. And he said, you have to be crazy to do this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. At least yeah. a little you bit. You have to be a little stubborn, a little bit, you know, naive to think that you can. But then, you know, once you dive in, I think having that having that structure can be really helpful to temper the, the craziness of jumping into a business. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Erin, for joining me and having this conversation. Um, I can't wait uh, to follow up with you again uh, year five we'll see all of your exciting new new plans but uh, where can people find out more about your company and more about you online yeah the best place to go would be cottonandflax.com or find me on social I'm at cottonandflax thanks so much for having me thanks Erin bye bye listening to episode three of from maker to manufacturing i'm your host sarah cooley and as always you can follow me on twitter at sarah cooley on instagram at simply curated and come check me out on snapchat which is this fun new thing that i'm sure i will embarrass myself on at simply curated I've been trying to decide whether or not to launch the podcast episodes on Mondays or on Wednesdays. Originally, the first two episodes launched on Wednesday, but that was only because of an iTunes glitch and an error on my part and not getting it approved in time for it to launch on the Monday that I wanted it to launch on. Good job, Sarah. But in any case, I'm kind of liking this Wednesday release schedule. I feel like there are a lot of other podcasts that come out on Mondays, and by the middle of the week, sometimes it's time for something new. Let me know which you would prefer on Twitter or Instagram, or send me a snap. Also, I'd love to know if you guys have suggestions for other guests you would want me to interview. I'd love to know who you guys would like to hear from or if you have any topics or questions. I've gotten a few emails with some Q&As. If we get a few more, maybe we can do a full question and answer episode or maybe if they all start to kind of revolve around one topic, we can do a very specific topic show. Um, I'm not really sure, but I want this podcast to be really valuable for all of you guys who are taking the time to listen, as well as valuable for me since I get to interview all of these wonderful people. You can send me an email with your questions, sarah at simplycurated.com. And if you want more information about this podcast, including notes from today's show and previous episodes, check out frommakertomanufacturing.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes so you never miss an episode. And if you can take a few minutes and rate the podcast in iTunes, I would really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I'm your host, Sarah Cooley. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next time. Bye.